Hey everybody, Zach here. Before we get started with the podcast, I just want to let you know about our sponsor, Anchor. We're new to podcasting here at Salty Saints, and Anchor has made it so easy for us to get started. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast, so let me explain a little bit about it. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership, and it's everything that you need to make a podcast in one place. The best part about Anchor, though, is that it's absolutely free. So if you, like us, want to get your word out there, you want to try your hand at podcasting, make sure that you download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Salty Saints Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Zach, I'm your host, and I am sitting here with my new friend, Chris. You want to tell us a little bit about yourself, Chris? Hey, yeah, it's good to be here with you today. Uh, Yeah, I'm with uh, One Mission Society out of Greenwood, Indiana, serving the Lord in Medellin, Colombia. Awesome. Um, And kind of how did you get hooked up with OMS? Well, that's a long and a short story, Um, but my wife and I were called to mission, oh man, a number of years ago. Um, But eventually we were thinking we were going to go through a different mission agency, but met one of the mobilizers with One Mission Society at Asbury at the the seminary. And uh, just meeting with him, hearing his story and hearing how OMS was working in the world, we fell in love with the agency and what they stood for, their doctrine and theology. And after a one weekend, which is an experience where uh, prospective missionaries can go and check out One Mission Society, it's called One Weekend. We checked it out one weekend, and, man, it was so cool what God was doing, and it was just clear for us that that's, that was the path for us. So, Awesome. Uh, and, and you said you were a missionary in Columbia right now. Is that that's a current ongoing thing as well? Absolutely. Gotcha. That's correct. How many years have you been going? Well, we have been in Columbia a little over five years. Um, so, yeah, we're going on our sixth year now. Okay, gotcha. And you've got a family over there, is that right, you and your wife? That's right. Gotcha. Yeah, that's right. I'm married. My wife and I have been married for 21 years. We have three kids, uh, 15-year-old twins and a 16-year-old daughter. Oh, wow. Okay. So, yeah. And how how is uh, how how does that family life kind of work over there? Have they always grown up in that, like the kids? No. When we went, they were in um, second grade and fourth grade, and um, it, it was really an incredible experience for them. So there was that transition, but they were young enough that they right. they grew up in the language. They went to school studying in Spanish. So they speak native-level Spanish and are just incredible little American Colombians. That's awesome, <laughs> man. No, that's super cool. I, uh, I wish that I could have retained some of my high school Spanish. I was just in Mexico last year for a vacation, and we decided to go off the beaten trail and not use any of the, like— cruise guided um opportunities right. so we just ended up having to fend for ourselves, and i don't know how we survived because we could not speak spanish it was so bad but we got to figure it out um that is awesome though man do you want to like what what are you currently doing what what is happening right now 
with the mission field in Columbia? Man, that's a question I ask myself every morning. What am I doing now? <laughs> uh, no, I'm, I am the field director for Columbia, but I'm also the regional director for Latin America and the Caribbean. So there are lots of things we could talk about going on in Latin America, but uh, in Colombia, um, we, we lead the field, and it's pretty exciting what God is doing through various partners. OMS has been in Colombia since the 40s, so we have a, a seminary in Colombia. We also have uh, a church planting ministry that has over 20,000 house churches that have been planted, uh, a denomination with over 700 churches. So there's just a lot of things going in, on in Colombia, including just a thriving prison ministry where God is working to transform lives through, through ministry in the prisons of Colombia. So my typical day could be in any one of those areas or, uh, or even something different. So uh, lots of things going on in Colombia. God is doing incredible things, but the, the neat part is the, the, the people we partner with in Colombia. The Colombians are just fantastic people doing a great job for the kingdom. Very cool. Um, you mentioned house churches. What, what's that look like? Well, it depends on where you are. We started the house church planting uh, movement in Antioquia, the, the state where we are, where Medellin is located. And it's more of an urban center. Uh, there are some rural areas, but that began to grow and take off. And, and what we've noticed is in these movements, it just at a grassroots level organically ends up all over the place. So it began expanding toward the north coast where um, it just naturally happened when people came into the kingdom and learned the process, they would repeat it. Even though they didn't have an official title as a church planter or a pastor, they just did what they were trained and started their own house church and, and then taught others to do it. And so it just organically grows. Um, and now it's in urban areas, it's in rural areas, it's in it's just going crazy. We're moving into Venezuela. We have other movements like this in Mexico and Ecuador as well. So what does it look like in an actual in-the-church basis? Well, it's it's kind of kind of like this in a sense. It's just people sitting down to talk about Jesus and study the Word together and do life together. Um, so in, in a typical house, you may have five people. You may have a dozen. It just depends on the location. Some places you may have 20, 25. It depends. But they sit down and they go through the Bible uh, inductively, just kind of studying, listening to one another's uh, insights, and uh, they worship the Lord. It's it's a lot like church, but in a smaller group. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I really like that. I like the idea of having that small knit. It's more kind of family-based. I mean, even if they're strangers, you know, like I feel like you have more opportunity to grow close when you're in that close contact with one another have you seen results more like that I, I just feel like in a larger church body it's hard to connect intimately with everyone in a larger church body does that make sense it makes perfect sense and i think that's one of the things that john wesley recognized in the in the, well what we call the methodist movement now was that you can have the grand celebration or the church event where that can be large and there's nothing wrong with that there's nothing wrong with the traditional church that Maybe there's 100 people or 5,000 people. But if you really want to drill down on discipleship, on, on life transformation, and, and the progressive part of sanctification, you really need to look at what small groups can do for that because you're no longer anonymous. Now you're having accountability with someone else in that group. You're learning from one another, hearing each other's stories. And there is a, there is a sharing of grace within the small group that a lot of times, not that the grace of God is absent by any means in the large celebration or the large gathering, 
but there's just something about a smaller, more intimate family-type uh, setting where we can realize you have the same struggles I have, or your struggles are different, but we both are seeking the same grace from the right. same Savior. That's awesome. Man. So, yeah, those small groups to me are, are, even in large churches, we try to have small groups in homes uh, so that we can have that dynamic and, and see discipleship happen in small groups. That's awesome. That's absolutely awesome. Uh, you mentioned a prison ministry. Um, how does that work over there? I'm sure that uh, Columbia's prisons are probably a little bit scarier than some of the U.S. prisons. Is that a safe assumption? <laughs> that is a safe assumption, but, you know, it's interesting because sometimes what seems scary in one context is normal in another. It's all, it's all what we are accustomed to. But definitely, if you're used to the American, North American, I should say, style of prison system, and then you walk into a Colombian prison, you're in for a rude awakening. They, they open the, There is a protocol to get in. You are checked, you're scanned, you're fingerprinted. Um, but once you're in the prison, you're just in there with the, with the inmates. So there are guards sporadically here and there, but you're not escorted. You're not in one side of the bars and prisoners are on the other. You're in the general population. So that's very different. The other thing that is quite different is the level of security. Um, I can recall walking through Bea Vista and watching a, an inmate cutting a mattress in half with a machete. And I was thinking, why do the inmates have machetes? <laughs> <laughs> and so my next trip in, we actually couldn't get into the prison because they had done a shakedown. The guards had gone in and, and checked all the cells, and there were three 55-gallon drums full of weapons that they had found and brought out. Wow. So it's a different scenario, but at the same time, it opens a lot more doors, and there's a lot more opportunity to connect with, with inmates. You can just stand there and talk and pray with people and share. Um, we painted one of the cell blocks one time. They call them patios, but we uh, painted one of the cell blocks, and we only had enough brushes and rollers for the people who came in from the outside, our team. But the inmates wanted to help so bad that they just put their hands in the paint and started rubbing them on the walls. Really? And we found that while we did this together, we were able to share about the gospel and, and share about Jesus. And, and one of the inmates had lost his, his brother and sister to gang violence. And the hit was actually on him, but they couldn't get to him, so they killed his siblings. Wow. So he was in the prison dealing with the guilt of the fact that his siblings were dead because of his gang activity. And uh, so we shared the gospel with him, and, and he, he prayed to surrender to Jesus and afterwards, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't feeling the peace that we were hoping he would feel. And so the more I talked to him about it, he started talking about the shame that he feels. And we were able to share the, a, a more full gospel that it's not just about forgiveness of sins. It is actually about the removal of shame and the restoration of honor. And it's about living and walking in the freedom that only comes through Christ. Yes, he has to deal with what his activity created but there was an answer for everything in the cross and through what Jesus did. And long story short, and being able to work together with the prisoners and do something together and at the same time talking and sharing, uh, the next day we came back to the prison. His name was Sergio, or Sergio in a more English uh, sound. He was just a different person. We didn't see it the day we shared the gospel, but the next day we came back and he was just beaming. So excited to see us, so excited about his faith in Jesus. And he said, last night was the first night I've slept from the time I closed my eyes until I woke up this morning. I have never slept a full night. 
in, in 10 years. And he said, I slept all night long last night. And wow. it's because of the peace that I had uh, from Jesus. That's awesome, so, man. That's so cool. So, yeah, the, the prison ministry is a really cool and exciting ministry in over 200 prisons. Let, let me just share this with you quickly. You're good. Um, the interesting thing about the prison ministry is a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times in the USA, we have a ministry, we go in and we, we do it and then we leave. The prison ministry in Colombia begins with uh, evangelism, you know, and, and for us evangelism is me sharing my testimony and then sharing about the gospel. So maybe I can do that in two or three minutes perhaps. And that's evangelism. I share that with somebody, and I quote-unquote evangelize them. Well, for, in Colombia, we look at evangelism a little bit as a little bit longer process. It's not a single event. It's a process from ignorance all the way to making a decision about Jesus. And you have to have all the information to do that. So in the prison, our evangelism is actually the book of Mark. It's not just a story. It's not just a testimony. It's, we go through the book of Mark in an eight-week time frame to answer three questions. Who is Jesus? What did he say? And what am I going to do with him? So about 80% of the prisoners who go through this full study make a commitment to either surrender to Christ or to at least continue on in the discipleship. Some go in undecided, but about 80% want to continue. Then they go into what we call train and multiply. It's a discipleship uh, process, usually about a year to 18 months. And then if they complete that, they can go into the Bible Institute, which is connected to our seminary, and they actually do a Bible Institute, a theology program behind bars. So long story short, people will come in perhaps as an assassin, as a murderer, as a thief, or whatever, whatever their crime is, and by the time they, their sentence is served and they leave, they are basically pastors. And many of our churches in Columbia have been planted through people who came through the system in prisons. Really? Absolutely. That is incredible. I mean, that's kind of similar to Paul, I guess. You know, I mean, he wasn't killing people, but he was essentially handing people over to go die. You know, I mean, that's that's really, really interesting. Um, something else I was kind of thinking about, and I know I've talked to Randy about this a little bit. Um, are most people in Colombia Catholic? I would say most people in Latin America are Catholic. Yeah. There's a few exceptions, but the vast majority are Catholic. So are you well-received being more Protestant? There was a day in Colombia where the Protestant church was persecuted by the Catholic church. I think that day has passed. Okay. There are towns, especially in rural areas, there are towns that are controlled by the Catholic priest and the Catholic church. Uh, and it's a little more difficult for the Protestant missionaries or Protestant Colombian pastors. It's a little more difficult for them. Uh, persecution level, no, I don't, I don't see that. If it exists, I'm not seeing it. Okay. Um, now, we're not always welcomed. It just depends on the location, depends on the priest. Sometimes we work well together, sometimes not so much. Right. Um, so it's an interesting dynamic, okay. interesting dynamic. That's interesting. Um. Now, what originally sparked your interest in making a move like this? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, actually. Um, my wife, after we were married, we've been married 21 years now, but we had just been married maybe a year. I'd always been in church, but not always that committed. 
to Christ and, and to his kingdom, but had always been in church. I'm from Alabama, if your listeners can't hear my accent. So uh, Southern culture is you go to church. <laughs> right. It doesn't matter whether you actually are committed to Christ, you go to church. And that's sort of how I was. I had a great Christian family. I was not that committed. So my wife asked me, what if God called us to be missionaries? What would you say? And I said, well, he'd be wasting his breath because I'm not moving from right here. Well, about three years later, um, we had gone through our own crises and um, was really searching the Lord, asking him, you know, what does he want in our lives? We'd made a commitment. It was no longer just a cultural Christianity. We had made a commitment and was in a period of fasting and praying and seeking him. And during that time, we went to a missions conference. And it was at that conference that God absolutely broke our heart for the nations not for any particular people group. We didn't know who or where. We just knew God was breaking our hearts and calling us to serve him in his global mission. We didn't know what that looked like. We didn't know if it would be as missionaries or as people who support mission. Or We didn't know. We both had our jobs. We're doing our thing in business. And so that was the calling. And then working that out, uh, I spoke to several different mission leaders, um, and they kind of directed me to go back to school. At that time, I was running grocery stores, had not finished university because I was making the money I wanted to make, so there was no point in continuing. So one, one leader told me, you can go to the mission field without any more education, but you may be limited. So he challenged me to go back and finish university, and then I said, well, if I'm going to finish university, I'll go to seminary. So uh, after all of that, and my wife and I began having children. I mean, I finished seminary with three kids in diapers. My poor wife, I don't know why she stuck with me. <laughs> um, but the thing is, is that God used every step of that journey in what we're doing today. From my grocery business background, uh, from that, I, I manage grocery stores. So there was management, there was finance, there was uh, dealing with people and even even dealing with difficult people, if you can imagine that in the grocery business. And then going to school, and, and I pastored for five years while we were going through this process as well. So pastoral ministry experience and then the family experience we had, having kids while I was busy studying or working and my wife was really raising kids almost on her own. But God used every bit of that, and we're seeing how his grace was in that process. And the whole time, and I, I hope someone's listening to this, that, that maybe they're in the same position. The whole time I was looking, when I get to the mission field, when I'm a missionary, all this will be fulfilled and it will be this euphoric bliss. <laughs> and I missed a lot of the journey. God was doing incredible things on the journey, and I was focused on the destination. Right. So then you get to the destination, you go, now what? Right. The, the bottom line is we only have today to live in it. Plan for tomorrow like it's coming, but live in today. But the bottom line is that God used all of that and is using it in what we're doing in mission today. And it's, it's pretty incredible to see his grace and his hand in that process. That's awesome, man. I, I think you nailed it uh, talking about living for today and planning for tomorrow. You know, I think we get our sights so set on the end goal that, oh, that's when I'm going to make the difference. But, like, the little things now matter, too, or what may seem like little things now may be – may have huge implications for later. Yeah, so that's that's awesome. It's great advice. Yeah, I, I was talking to a lady this morning who was going through a crisis, and some of those, I guess, pastoral skills <laughs> were being called into action, but she was going through crisis, and sometimes when we're in those situations, whether it's a difficult time of life or a crisis, we're focused solely on that, and that's all we can see. And so I asked this individual, 
what is God wanting to do through this for where he's taking you in the future? How do you see your crisis or your difficulty? How is God working through that for where he's taking you for tomorrow? And as this individual began to think about it and began to share, it turns out that all of that crisis was actually God getting her attention to move her to the next thing that he had been leading her towards anyway. And so journey is like that. Every day God has something for us that's just, it's a blessing for that day, but it's also leading us in the next step of the path. He lights our way. That's very cool, man. That's very cool. Um, If, what, what kind of information, what kind of advice would you give to somebody who may be feeling called into ministry or into mission work um, of any sort? The first one I would say is, is write it down, tell it to someone. And the reason I say that is, is it's like our Ebenezer. If you remember from the Bible story, they erected a, a set of stones, and that was the Ebenezer. It was the marker for where God did something. And sometimes we have a calling, we have an experience with God, and it it has great meaning in the moment, but as the days and weeks come, it kind of wanes. And we're able to kind of put it in a place in our mind that, well, it happened, but it's so what? I'm convinced that there are hundreds and maybe thousands of Christians that have a calling to mission, maybe a pastoral calling, and they've been able to categorize it in as in maybe I didn't hear it, maybe I'm crazy, And they just kind of walk away from it and continue their life unfulfilled. So my first piece of advice would be write it down, make it firm. I know what I heard from the Lord. I know what I experienced. And then begin exploring it. Begin exploring it. When I was 18 years old, I felt like God called me to preach in a a moment of clarity. And I went to my pastor and I said, I think God may be calling me to preach. And bless his heart, he was an incredible pastor, but he looked at me and he said, Son, you don't have to think when God calls you, you know. So until you know, there's no calling. And I believe in my heart of hearts that God did call me, and if he had worked with me in that calling and and helped direct me towards where God was calling, my years from 18 to 25 would have been very different. Mm -hmm. So if people are feeling God's calling, God's leading or nudging, maybe is a better word to use, explore it. That's our step of faith. God has moved towards that person in grace to to put his finger upon them and call them towards something. But now they have to respond in faith and say, okay, God, I heard your voice. And so now I'm obeying. So explore that. Call people that are, that are well, first of all, talk to your pastor. That's the first right. best step. But even if your pastor says something like my did, my pastor did, if, you, if you're called, you'll know it, you know. Don't take that as the final word. Continue exploring until you've worked that out. Get a hold of a mission agency like One Mission Society or another one and just see what options there are to explore that calling. Maybe God didn't call you. I don't know. But more than likely, if it's in your heart, there's a calling there, and there's a place for you in God's mission. Right. My, my sort of rule of thumb for that has always been um, if you feel a calling in your heart and it matches up biblically, if, if, if it seems like something biblically God would say, it probably is. <laughs> you know? like, if it doesn't seem like something he would say in the Bible, you're probably just making stuff up in your head. <laughs> you nailed that. You nailed that because the Bible is our standard. And that's one of the things, you know, I mentioned instead of calling, nudging. Uh, we have people that will say to a missionary, especially when you're out funding because we have to raise our own funds, 
somebody will say, well, you know, I'm not really called to that, so, you know, God bless you and go in peace. And that's sort of their, oh, I'm not called to that. The bottom line is, is every one of us as Christians have a calling to share our faith. So we're all called to evangelize, and we're all called to complete the Great Commission. Jesus didn't stand up and say, go, therefore, if you have a calling, and make disciple of all nations. That was a call to all of us. We're all called. The question is, where in God's mission do I fit? And so sometimes it's not, am I called? It's more, am I equipped? And where would God use me? And if I've made that determination that God's going to use me in this role, what do I need to do to be equipped for it? And those are the questions to ask mission leaders or pastors. I feel like God would use me to preach. How, How can I be equipped to do that? God is calling me to be a missionary. What equipping do I need to fulfill that calling? Instead of wasting a lot of time and energy and emotion on, did God call me? Did God? Yeah, we're all called. Get out there and go. Let's do it. Right, right. That's awesome, man. Um, something, do, do you ever run into, man, I want to say this right because this could come off really bad. Um, do you ever run into missionaries or people who are, referring to themselves as going on like mission trips that it almost just seems more like a vacation to them than it does like actually plugging in and trying to help people because i've seen a few i'm not saying this about everybody i see go on mission trips i definitely see very real mission trips from like church bodies and things but sometimes it just sort of seems like a vacation in disguise with some places and i know that sounds horrible but that's the vibe I get, and I know that's the vibe some other people get. So, I mean, have you ever seen that sort of thing go on? Not not with OMS, but just in general. Uh, yeah, you're 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 walking down a dangerous road. But you know, I'm reminded of the scripture. You know, Paul says that even if Christ is preached in vain, at least he's preached. <laughs> that's fair. Um, to a degree, yeah. Healthy short-term mission and and non-healthy or unhealthy short-term mission, that's a real issue in in missions today. Because there was a time where churches really put a lot of investment in long-term career missionaries. And now we go to those same churches and, well, we don't have anything to invest in an on-the-field career missionary because we're funding 10 trips a year to go to this various place for a week. I spoke with one church that spent like 50 to, no, it was $80,000 on a trip where they sent their members to India for 10 days, and it cost like 80 grand. Okay. And I'm thinking, praise God you're getting out there and you're going after it and you're, you're wanting to do mission, but you could support a, a, f- a rather large missionary family right. <laughs> for that kind of money a year, and, and, and see, they're that's there that's sort of what I'm getting at. Like, I don't want to make it sound like going and doing mission, like, is ever a bad idea. But I think there are smarter ways to do it. I guess is that that's a better way of asking my question. It is. And there's a balance. We need these short-term teams. We use them in Colombia, and they're a great blessing to us. So when they come, and our, a lot of our short-term teams actually share the gospel. And they open doors that a Colombian may not be able to get in. Mm. So because you're a North American, you're something different, you're speaking English, you have this translator. A lot of people will open the door or stop in the street and actually listen to what they have to say. So they're hearing the gospel precisely because someone who is different from themselves is sharing it. That's cool. So there is benefit. So short-term teams can be incredibly helpful and incredibly healthy. 
Another side of that is, I don't know the exact uh, ratio, but I want to say 60 to 70 percent of missionaries, career missionaries, uh, have already taken a short-term trip, and that greatly influenced their decision to serve as a career missionary. Really? So there is something that happens in the life of the one who goes on the trip, and if it's done well, something can happen that really impacts the host culture where they go. But if it's done poorly, and it's all about the food I would rather eat and the bed I want to sleep in, and it has to be a four-star hotel, and if we don't go to the beach or don't go shopping, then I'm not going. Right. Then we've turned a mission opportunity into this kind of selfish, perhaps even something that feeds our narcissistic culture. That's my fear. Um, I have never been on a mission trip. Um, anything I am learning right now, I mean, this is all fresh to me. This is all new. I, I talk to guys like you. I talk to guys like Randy. I learn things like this. My big thing is I, all I can do is kind of look from the outside because I've never done that myself. I would love to. I've just never done it. Um, but that's interesting. That's really interesting. Well, we got a place for you in Colombia, brother. Is that right? Yeah. With my non-speaking, uh, non-Spanish speaking. That's all right. <laughs> I've got three kids that can translate. That's fair. There you go. That's all right. Um, so, what what do you see happening in your future with Colombia as a missionary? That's a yeah. That's a great question. So. In Colombia, the, the church planting and the um, the growth of the denomination, the growth of the house church planting movement, all of that is being run under Colombian leadership. And that's the beautiful thing about Colombia. Uh, I'm more of a liaison, more of a representative. I'm not running these things. I'm not doing them. It's all being handled by Colombians in a beautiful and incredible way. And synergistically, all these ministries are working together. The next step, though, in Colombia, sending Colombians as missionaries to other places in the world. So in one of our denominations that has over has around 700 churches, we've actually developed a school of missions. Now, we were going to do that in, in, in person, so we wanted to start with three locations in Colombia so that people who want to learn more about missions, including pastors, you wouldn't have to be a missionary or someone who is committed to be a missionary, that could be a pastor of a church, could come and learn some concepts of missiology, a biblical theology of mission, um, soteriology, uh, cross-cultural mission, a little bit of anthropology, uh, church history, some of these things that are important for missionaries to understand before they go. That's what we were going to teach at Mission Finance, for example. That's what we were going to teach in the School of Missions. Well, then the pandemic happened. So all of this was in the plans and the, and the works. We we're going to start in three locations, hope to expand to ten locations within five years. All of this to develop a missionary culture within the Church of Columbia and to watch the Holy Spirit call people out of that and then uh, develop the apparatus to send them and structures. That, that was kind of the plan, the idea, all bathed in prayer, obviously. But the pandemic happened and put those plans on hold and... Um, our director, Wilberto Ruiz, decided to just begin this online. So he began doing classes by Zoom, and I was able to teach the first session on the, uh, biblical theology of mission. And to my surprise, there were 120 people, well, 120 computers right, signed on. multiple people. And at some of those, there was like a, a living room or a porch full of people sitting around the computer. So, you know, there was probably 200 people uh, in on that first session. Now, this is the first run of the School of Missions. So that's really what's happening. The cutting-edge thing that's happening in Colombia is we would like to develop a mission-sending agency in Colombia 
train Colombians as missionaries and then develop some sort of revenue model, some sort of structure uh, that will enable us to fund them and send them uh, wherever in the world. One of the places I'm looking at is in Mexico. There's an area in Mexico called the Circle of Silence. It's an eight-state region in Mexico that, according to the Mexican census, is less than 3% evangelical Christian. Wow. So Mexico as a whole is about 9% evangelical Christian, but in this eight-state region, right in the center of Mexico, it's less than 3%. So we're looking at developing a new project through One Mission Society to really focus on uh, the circle of silence, bringing uh, the church planting model that we use with train and multiply, planting churches, multiplying churches. But we want to send Colombians into that scenario to work as as ministers to work as pastors and church planters and evangelists because they've done so well in Colombia with this information with this method of church planting we would like to just pick them up and put them in Mexico and see if they can really impact the circle of silence in that country and there are other opportunities all around the world we're looking at other opportunities in Spain Spain is Spanish speaking but the culture is quite different from Latin America but man, it's a, it's a it's a difficult field. People are post Christian, if I can use that term. Yeah, we're, I think we're all there right now. Absolutely, sadly. and and you're dealing with that. But. Maybe just a little ahead of us. So um, we're re-evangelizing much of Europe, and I think we can use some of our Colombian partners whose whose faith life is so real and vibrant, and just place them as missionaries in some of these places where the gospel needs to either be proclaimed for the first time, Circle of Silence, or re-proclaimed places like Spain. That's awesome, man. Yeah. That is awesome. Um, well, we're kind of at the end of our time, I think. Do you have anything else you want to plug in or just uh, right here at the end? Any, uh, any way people could partner with you? Any way they could see what's going on with what you guys are doing? Well, absolutely. I think uh, One Mission Society has an awful lot of room for new missionaries, um, in Latin America, we're wanting to send missionaries to numerous countries. Um, you can always get a hold of me, Chris Williams. You'll see me on the One Mission Society website. My email is cwilliams at onemissionsociety.org. I would love my passion beyond doing missions is mobilizing others to be missionaries. So if there's somebody listening and they're thinking missions may be in their future, even if they're not sure, we would absolutely love to hear from you and talk about what options and possibilities there may be in God's mission. Our goal is to see people doing exactly what God would have them to do, whether it's here or in another part of the world, and whether it's through One Mission Society or not. We just want to see the kingdom of God grow so that, uh, so that that day comes that Revelation 7-9 talks about, that people from every tongue, tribe, and nation will gather around the throne of the Lamb and offer him praise and worship for him, for who he is, and give him glory. That's the goal. That's awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for uh, hanging out with me, talking to me, um, picking my brain. <laughs> and I'm sure you've picked some people's brains that are listening to this as well, man. So, Well, I've had a blast. I appreciate you having me. No problem. Thank you guys so much for listening to Salty Saints Podcast. Uh, if you want to uh, support us, you can do that at anchor.com. Um, we are a, a, a production of New Hope Church. If you want to learn more about New Hope, please visit www.becomehope.com and stay salty. 
Hey everybody, I'm Dale. And I'm Tamara. We're hosts of the Kainos Project podcast. Where we help you tackle ancient Christian truths in everyday settings. To learn more and subscribe, go to lifeaudio.com.